1: Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, as we all know, the war in Ukraine is having a devastating impact on the Ukrainian people and, and the ripples from it are being felt right across the globe. Today, we're going to talk to two Ukrainian women who have unique insights into the current crisis. Natalia Sommer is a longtime resident in Cork, but she's now embarking on a rescue mission to Poland where her niece is waiting for her after managing to get out of Ukraine. The rest of Natalia's family and close friends are still in the country, even as the Russians advance. We're also going to speak to Tatiana Vagramenko, who is an anthropologist and religious studies scholar who's recently taken up a position in UCC. And she has some very interesting insights into both the history and the culture of her country and its relationship with Russia. You're both very welcome. Natalia, you're going over to Poland to bring your niece back here to Ireland where you live. She had to go to Poland from her home in the Ukraine. Would you tell me about her journey and where exactly she is now?
2: Of course, Mick. First of all, it wasn't a very easy journey. She lives normally with her grandparents in the city of Kiev. And about a week ago, when all this has already started, You know, when the war has started, they decided, mainly because of her, perhaps, to move out to a small village near Kovel. It's a town uh, close to both Polish and Belarusian border. So they went there. It was already difficult because, you know, to leave Kiev after the... Military action started and, you know, the first bombs were thrown onto the Boryspil airport, which is near Kiev, in the first days of the war. It was already difficult to leave Kiev because people started, started going west, started escaping. So they were going by their own car. And because of that, they had to wait in long queues. Traffic was very slow. Lots of traffic jam, people are very nervous. But eventually they made it to that safe house. It was some of the friends of her grandparents who provided them with shelter. And um, she intended to stay there with her grandparents, who he loves very, very much. But, uh, you know, uh, with the progression of war, with the situation becoming more and more dangerous and uh, us worrying about her a lot, I was able to convince her to try and uh, come to me, come to Ireland. It wasn't easy to organize because by that time all the flights were cancelled. There was no flying in or out of Ukraine. So the only way for her to reach Ireland was to cross the border and here a great help came to us from our friends who actually live in Ireland but they have family and property in Poland. In the first days, even before the war per se started, we were visiting them and they told me that if any of my people needed safe home, if any of my people needed shelter, I can count of them, their home was available for my family. And uh, I get back to them and ask them to help me to get my my niece to Ireland. So, what happened then? Catherine, Catherine is the name of my niece, went from that village to Kovil. And, you know, she's, she's a young girl, she's 22 years old. She was very scared because she has never travelled alone before that, let alone in such nervous situation. So we were kind of thinking maybe she will travel to Lviv, where another close relative of ours was going to.
1: And Lviv, I'm I right, Natalia, is the city in the west of Ukraine that it seems to be from there, there's a major passageway to Poland that's, basically jammed the whole time now with, with people trying to get out.
2: Yes, that is true. So we thought my niece will go to join those relatives of ours and cross together. But she phoned me and said, you know, in kovel there is now a direct bus to Warsaw. So I told her, board it immediately and uh, go yourself, go, go alone. So this child with only one small school bag on her shoulders, you know, with very few of her clothes, her iPhone and uh, and maybe, you know, a couple of socks and, and some food boards the, the bus and uh, starts traveling. I think it took her about 15 hours because they had to wait on the border to cross quite a long time. So kind of by the late evening of the same day she arrived in Warsaw where she was met by our very kind Polish friends and uh, I was told that the woman who was picking her up at the bus station and she saw her with this one small bag. That woman cried. This woman's name is Joanna and she told me afterwards that her own daughter is of the same age and she instantly felt you know, a pain in her heart to see that. Because, you know, Poles are very, very compassionate people. They do feel for for Ukrainians very much. And I must say that the help, the compassion, the kindness which we are getting from, and the support we are getting from our Polish friend is amazing. Amazing. I never expected anything like that. They are going beyond any call of duty. They don't put any conditions on their hospitality, on their kindness. They are ready to spend money. They are ready to provide shelter. They are giving us time, you know, as if we were, you know, more than family.
1: Yeah, it is interesting in desperate times how the true nature of some people shines through, both positive and negative. And as you say, in that instance, there are huge numbers of poles where they really are um, putting the shoulder to the wheel so to speak, in order to help their neighbours and uh, family and friends. And yourself, Natalia, have you other family still in Ukraine?
2: Oh, yes, I have plenty. My brother and my mother and my aunt are still there. Uh, The older generation simply refuses to run to the foreign country. Also, the family of my ex-mother-in-law, because uh, I am married to a wonderful Irishman for more than 20 years. But before that, I was married in in Ukraine and I still keep very close contact with my ex-husband's family. So they they also stayed. Uh, My aunt is staying in her home in Sumy. My mother is there with with my brother. So it is very difficult. I was very worried and I am very worried for them.
1: And you're in touch with them all the time. And As you said, it is interesting, the older generation, very understandably, and it would be the same in any country or society, I I would suspect, they're not going to go anywhere. But it must be very frightening for them in terms of what's coming to them.
2: You know, I find that people are very resilient. Then I phone them, and you were right, I actually keep in contact with all my people there, like, every day for the last... Three weeks, even before the conflict started, I uh, start my day that I do about an hour and a half round of phone calls, uh, messenger messages asking how everyone are, how was their night, where are they, do they have shelter, do they have food, do they have water, do they have somebody to help them. You know, unfortunately, there is very, very little I can do for the people who are in Ukraine, who are there. But at least I can provide some moral support to show them that they are not forgotten, that I am with them, at least in spirit, at least in, in my thoughts, you know, in my words, in my presence. But, you know, the, the, the feeling of guilt, the feeling of helplessness is very hard. For, for me, not for them. They're saying they are OK, then, the you know, even if they have to spend a night or even longer, a night and a day in the bomb shelter, they say they're fine, they have water, they have somewhere to sleep. But it is very difficult.
1: I'm sure. Um, Natalia, as you said, because there was fear that this was going to happen before the invasion actually began. But I think... A lot of people, and I'd certainly include myself here, perhaps out of ignorance, even in the build-up, didn't believe that Putin would go that far, that he was playing brinkmanship, that he wanted attention, and that ultimately, and, and once or twice in the few weeks before, and it appeared like it, that he would ultimately pull back. What was your attitude at that time? Did you think it would come to this?
2: I tell you the truth. I started talking with my family and my friends about leaving Ukraine, maybe leaving Kiev or and going to Western Ukraine, about ten days before it all started, before the twenty fourth of February. I think the moment we heard the predictions of the President Biden that Putin is preparing for war, it already rang the bell with me. But even I, though I was urging them, I was talking to them about this possibility, I was organizing this possibility of shelter for them in Poland, even I actually had very huge doubt that it will happen. And uh, I will be honest with you, I think no one believed, no one thought that it really could happen. You know, I was thinking about preventative measures just in case. But deeply in my heart, I, I didn't think it was possible. That's why I didn't insist that they moved away, then it was relatively easy. And uh, I must say, up until now, I feel guilty for that, that I didn't insist that I wasn't more, more pushy about that.
1: Yeah, I suppose guilt is that condition that's there and even when it's not merited at all, people are going to feel it, unfortunately. There's no point in anyone saying it, you have nothing to be guilty about, but that's going to be there anyway. That's the nature, human nature, unfortunately. Um, Tell me, you've been here over 20 years, Natalia. Did you go back home frequently for visits? I
2: usually went at least once a year. Uh, Last time I was in Kiev was in the end of September. 2021. I had to travel because my father was dying, and uh, you know I was lucky in a sense that I actually he actually passed away. Then I was there, so I was at least you know I was present in these moments. It was very important for me. So uh, that's the when I was there last time. In a sense, you know, again I feel it sounds terrible, but you know now I think. He was lucky not to live and see what is happening now.
1: I can understand that, absolutely, yeah. I I can understand that, particularly people at at a later stage of life. And tell me, as you say, you obviously very frequently went back and you would very much have been in touch with what was going on at home. After, did you notice any change? For example, after 2014, after Russia went into Crimea and Putin, obviously, started giving the impression that he had designs on Ukraine. Was there any change then? Did people think you were entering a new era or did people think he would just stop there and your family, obviously, and and people at home might be able to continue living a normal life?
2: You know, annexation of Crimea was was a big surprise. Again, you know, it happened very swiftly. No one was expecting it. But after it, you know, at least in Kiev, at least in in kind of my family and uh, in the circle of my friends, people, I don't think very much have changed. Maybe people became more politically aware. Maybe they kind of, uh, even for themselves, they realize what their political preferences are. They became more vocal. There was more discourse more discussion about, you know, what's happening in the country. You know, younger generation tends to be pro-Western. The older generation can have kind of mixed loyalties in that way. You know, depends who you are talking to and what they decide. But in in general, I can't say that for us too much was changing. You know, we were aware of what was happening, but uh, no one foresee the war
1: definitely yeah, it was and in a more general sense natalia as i say you you've been gone for over 20 years so you, you would have um, left around the turn of the century and the soviet union then was what about 10 years it had been gone mm. i mean the changes presumably initially in terms of leaving the soviet union and then the kind of direction that uh, ukraine would have gone in could you speak a bit about that
2: what I saw, it was kind of a gradual gravitating away from the ex-Soviet Union loyalties towards the the West, towards, you know, the maybe pan-European ambition. More people realizing and, you know, making it a part of their worldview that Ukraine is a separate nation. It should have its own way of... Uh, uh, way of development, its its own uh, historical destiny, etc. But it was very gradual, you know. It did uh, intensify after the 2014. It did, you know. I had some friends and acquaintances who took part in the protests uh, against the Yanukovych. But again, you know, uh, I, I also had other friends who were of... Um, on the on the other side of political spectrum you know maybe not not ever actively but in their thoughts but you know people still believe that whatever was their political convictions they still believe that the most important thing is to work to build their peaceful life to try and prosper in the state where they're living in so that's my kind of take on the situation
1: Yeah, and as you say, it came out from under the yoke of communism and and there was prosperity. I mean, it's a relatively wealthy country with natural resources and that kind of thing.
2: Mm. I must say that after the beginning of that war, there was such a surge of patriotism, such surge of unity, which I never foreseen in the Ukrainian people, you know including myself, I must say that uh, maybe for the first time in my own life I feel, uh, you know, I feel 100% Ukrainian, you know, though I was born in Ukraine and, uh, you know, I have uh, uh, Ukrainian blood in my veins, uh, I am of mixed origin, you know, I have Russian blood, I have uh, Polish blood, I have Jewish blood, etc. Like very, very many people in our country. But that's the thing which Putin managed to do for me. He turned me personally into Ukrainian patriot. And I think it, ha- it, it happened. It happened with many people.
1: Yes, yeah, certainly get that impression from what we've seen in terms of the the reaction and the response. To the invasion, and it's very interesting too, Natalia, because that kind of nationalism obviously would not have been there. That patriotism in the days of the Soviet Union.
2: It is patriotism, and it is patriotism in the in the best of sense. You know, when you want to protect your country, when you want a good yes. for it, but it doesn't mean that, uh, like, you don't want bad for other nations, other countries, etc.
1: That's interesting, and it would have been a relatively new phenomenon in Ukraine. And what's also very interesting, though, is, as, as you said, even your own family background, and from what I can gather, it is very typical, that th- there are huge blood ties between Ukraine and Russia on many different levels.
2: Yes, I, I would agree with it. Many people have friends or family, relatives in, in Russia, I personally have quite a few uh, close friends in Moscow, in St. Petersburg and in other uh, cities of Russia. Um, And, uh, you know, to be uh, fair to my uh, Russian friends, no one of them actually approves this war. No one of them wants with this war. Uh, they are all in shock. They are all depressed. They are all very, very, uh, I wouldn't say even upset. It is It is deeper than that. You know, uh, it is not what uh, people want.
1: Natalia, thank you very much for talking to us today. And good luck with your rescue mission. And hopefully your family and friends and everybody you know and the Ukrainian people as much as possible will all remain safe. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Best of
0: luck. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe.
1: As I mentioned earlier, Tatyana Vagramenko is a Ukrainian anthropologist and religious studies scholar. Tatyana, could you tell me about the history of Ukraine, how it came to be a nation, and I suppose as well its ties with Russia, how deep they are?
3: Well, I would propose to start from the end, not from the beginning, to understand what's going on. Basically, OK, 24th of February... Russia invaded Ukraine, and uh, that's the beginning of the possibly the most dangerous uh, military conflict in Europe since the World War II. So a few hours before this invasion, Putin delivered his speech to the nation, and that's a thing that was uh, very important uh, to connect to the history of Ukraine, because in his speech he says that Ukrainian statehood is a fiction. It's uh, just a mere mistake of the Soviet project, the product of the Bolshevik Party in the 1920s, he said, Ukraine should be named after Vladimir Lenin. And as such, he claims back what was generally given by his country. And in this case, he meant the Soviet Union. So he calls Ukrainian government nationalist, neo-Nazi. So all this kind of idea in the next following uh, days were you know, being uh, developed by in a dramatic way by the Russian media. They, was all, they were starting calling all Ukrainians nationalist and neo-Nazi. On one radio, Russian radio, I heard Ukrainians are related to Ukraine as little as Wahhabism is related to Islam. So kind of where this bizarre idea come from, how one, the head of one state just out of nothing de- denies the statehood of another country. And I think uh, we, you know, we were talking about two major countries, not like a small countries, like we're not dealing with the Yugoslavian con- conflict, for example. This is a, one of the biggest country in the world is against a very big country in, U- in Russia. Ukraine is bigger than France and is very economically and politically important in Europe. So what I would probably tell from position as anthropologist and historian, uh, who I am, and we've been talking about geopolit- geopolitical and political implications of this war but there is one actor who I believe is very present in this war and the actor is the past and particularly the shared past uh, of Russia and, and Ukraine because in the politics of both countries the Soviet era remains kind of stumbling and painful block a uh, dominant and painful stumbling block so um, it's very important to understand this is not an ethnically based conflict because both countries are multi ethnic. This is not a religiously based conflict. Both countries are multi religious. And I believe this is not a territorial conflict either, although we see that Mr. Putin has annexed Ukrainian territories and now claims this recognition. But still, I believe this is not a territorial conflict. There is lots of ideology that back this, this, this war, this this is kind of, this ideology is rooted in the history. And I believe the history is very important. And that's the question, what's the history of Ukraine? Uh, it's a long and complicated history. I don't want to be barring it's this border.
1: As most countries are.
3: Yes, true. Yes. <laughs> yes. And well, Ukrainian borders were changing over the last centuries. It was part of the Russian Empire. It was part of the austro Hungarian Empire. It was part of Poland. So it's kind of all this changing ethnic composition, uh, the, the borders. So in 1917, the Russian Empire collapsed and that made possible the Russian Revolution. That's the beginning of everything. That's the beginning of the current war. In 2021, there was created the new empire, one of the biggest in the world in the 20th century, the Soviet Union. And uh, that's the, there was the beginning of the new era, the Soviet history, which is still very much present. And uh, this history is one of the main actors of the current war, as I
1: believe. Sorry, Tatjana, the Soviet empire was created when?
3: 1921 soon after the revolution.
1: Right. Because some people would be under the impression that it evolved after World War Two, but you're saying it actually began and how it impacted on Ukraine was 20 years before that again.
3: Yeah, yes. Basically, in 1917, we have a revolution. Uh, that's the beginning of the Soviet period. In a few years, 21, the Soviet Union was created. And then Basically, between 17 and 21, Ukraine was fighting for independence, but it lost the war. It lost there was a civil war, the Bolshevik Party uh, won and it joined forcefully. We don't know what kind of one historian would say forced, he was forced to join, another would say he joined the Soviet Union as one of the 15th republics. And the Soviet Union became a very centralized state with a growing totalitarian regime. And probably many of us heard about the Stalin's uh, great terror before the World War II that took millions of people. They perished in labor camps and prisons. Stalin moved people. He organized uh, wholesale deportations of ethnic groups, of religious groups. And Ukraine was one of the targets because he was constantly trying to undertake the so-called Sovietization of Ukraine that meant in many ways, that way that meant industrial development of Ukraine because Ukraine turned into important um, industrial region, quite quite powerful industrial industrial and, and, and urban territory, and that's what Putin now claims. Okay, I've made you basically. We've made you. The Soviet Union made you as you are now. I want it back, but it took just far too many lives of Ukrainians, because many Ukrainians were deported from the western Ukraine. To Siberia, where it just perished, or many died because it was just out of cold or because of lack of food. And that way, we're talking about millions, of people, hundreds of thousands deported overnight. And that was kind of redesigning of Ukraine, make making it less disobedient. And uh, also, there was a state sponsored famine because of this kind of confiscation of crops. Stalin created famine that was in the 30s that took millions of lives. There's still a the kind of Tragedy that is the Ukrainian Ukrainian history is trying to cope with, so we are talking about the, the the tension between the center of the Soviet Union and Ukraine and the tension that was during the Soviet seventy years. The Sovietization also meant Russianization, is is I, as I may, may say, because people were discouraged of of, um, speaking their own own ethnic languages. We're not talking about only Ukraine, but the entire Soviet Union. Uh, They were discouraged of investing themselves in local cultures. Russians as ethnic group, Russian as language, were the first among the equals, as they say. So from then, speaking Ukrainian, for example, was considered to be a kind of a sign of nationalism. Being, identifying myself as Ukrainian, it can be a sign of nationalism. And for national, for being nationalist, you can end up in prison. That was a, that was a a, a dangerous, dangerous phenomenon. And this is why, why when Putin now says, I'm going to liberate Ukraine because Ukrainians and Russians are the same, one and the same people he actually doesn't mean any fraternal relationship between Ukrainians and Russians. What he means actually that Ukrainians are Russians, kind of minor Russians, which Mm. probably the idea will not be supported by the majority of Ukrainians. Yeah,
1: and that's very interesting. And then you just take it forward to the the fall of the Soviet Union around 1990. And after practically, as you say, 70 years or more of colonisation, effectively, Ukraine has a chance uh, to breathe as perhaps a separate country. And those years in the 90s and rolling on from there, you know, the first 10 or 20 years, did the country manage to take on its own character to separate itself from what was the Soviet Union?
3: That was a very long process as well because uh, Ukraine got its independence in 1991 with the dissolution of the Soviet Union. But for many years, it was the, under the shadow of Russia, and it had a puppet government that made, indeed, everything uh, Putin, or before Putin, wanted. So, And that was until 2004, when the first Orange Revolution happened. And that was the beginning. For what I believe, the uh, regardless that there was a puppet government that wanted to be, that expressed all the loyalty to the... To the Kremlin, there was the grassroots movement that was going to the opposite direction. The Orange Revolution, 2004. The Maidan Revolution, 2014. The aim of these two revolutions was joining Europe. Ukrainians did not want to be Russians. Ukraine did not want to be Russia. They want to be Europeans and they want to be Europe. And that is the beginning of the war. It was two thousand and fourteen, actually, when the war—the actual war—began, and when the Putin, when Putin, began his uh, aggression.
1: And when you say Ukrainians wanted to be European, Tatiana, and looking west, to put it that way, do you think that was a very generalized view within the country, or would some people within have? perhaps still looked to Russia? Or, or would it have been a, a large minority, for instance, or a small minority?
3: There are, of course. The country, I'd say, in to, back in 2014 was split. The society was split because there was a a big part of population, particularly in this eastern Ukraine, did not want this move, that wanted to, uh, to remain uh, closely to Russia, mainly because they were... Um lots of mixed marriages, mixed families, lots of contacts with uh, with Russia. Russians were going um to Ukraine, Ukrainians were going to Russia to work. So there was a lots of uh lots of people who actually supported Russia. But I'd say this war, the current escalation would put an end to this split.
1: Yes, I'm with you. So big changes saw in two thousand and fourteen, Tatiana, and do you believe that after that there was a general feeling that at some stage Putin would try to realise this dream he has of, if you want to put it, re uh Ukraine?
3: Well, it was not only feeling, it was actual threat because that was a re sovietization of the entire Russia and we were all witnessing that. There is uh, all Ukrainians speak Russian uh, and they can they can watch and see what's going on in Russia. Uh, I myself was on the Maidan. I saw people. I saw this the people's movement and the how different they are. But uh, at the same time, what I can say that uh, Putin's aggression will put an end to this societal this societal split in Ukraine because even those people who were pro-Russian they see now the destruction of their lands because the pro-Russian population mainly live in in the eastern Ukraine and it's the eastern Ukraine that is now the war zone it's the eastern Ukraine that became the place of humanitarian catastrophe people are dying there the houses all buildings just the, the entire towns just are in full ruins and there are people who used to support Russia and I'm sure this, this war, I mean, whereas, uh, whereas Putin wants to, uh, to liberate Ukraine, as he says, but he does the opposite. He achieves the opposite. The op- the, uh, Ukraine goes further from Russia and there are less and less people who would still support uh, Putin and Russia after this uh, devastating uh, war that's brought uh, enormous destruction.
1: Would you have any take on whether or not that feeling that quite obviously drives Putin and presumably some around him, how much of a grip does it have on the Russian people themselves? Or is this very much something that's being driven from the top? Or is he, is he feeding into that type of yearning for the old empire among a certain section of the population?
3: Well, he, he began this war very much prepared. The guy is smart, I must say, and uh, the repression, and actually actual repression of any dissent, of any opposition, he just wiped out any kind of opposition uh, before the war, and that happened the last uh, 10 years, because people were in back in Russia, they are comparing, the few years before the war, they were comparing with the Stalin's great terror, because people were imprisoned, poisoned, killed, all the media by now is all the independent media by now is just banned and it's, it makes a very dangerous vacuum. People just do not get any information and what they get is the television, the state sponsored television that brings them, that brings the amazing picture where war simply do not exist and they cannot get any other, uh, any, any, any other picture because everything is blocked. My dearest friend in Russia, really, is an old man uh, who has no any technology to trying to get to reach any, uh, any any media abroad. He only watches TV and he honestly, sincerely believes that there is
1: no war. And what I'm trying to kind of get at is even if, for example, Putin was honest about what was going on there, would there be a section of the Russian people that would agree with him or... Is it very much uh, just himself and some of those around? him?
3: Well, I don't know whether he is misinformed or he's just crazy. That's something that really I don't understand because I can't understand how you can justify what you're doing. So either you really do not understand what you're doing, maybe he's just surrounded by the army of uh, people who would just, you know, just misinform him, or He creates this, I mean, I don't know whether a person who knows the truth can still support the truth. I just, I believe in goodness and I believe that there is not a single person like that. All those who support, and there is a big amount of people in Russia who supports uh, Putin just because, I guess, I believe just because they don't know the truth. They don't know what's going on in Ukraine. They still believe, like the the patriarch of, of the Orthodox Church, Patriarch uh, Kirill in Moscow a few days ago, he said there is a war in Donbass only, which is a smaller region in Ukraine. He, he actually didn't say that there is a war in entire Ukraine. And you know what he said? Why, how he justified this war? If you would be laughing, it's really, you would be laughing if you, if you, you need this to cry. He said because Ukraine forced Donbas to organize a gay parade. And that's the biggest scene, And this is why we're going coming libera- to liberate the Donbas from gay parades. So that was the biggest person of the Orthodox Church, the Kirill, who said that in his sermon.
1: Tatiana Vagromenko, thank you very much for talking to us today. Very interesting insights there from Tatiana and Natalia into what exactly the Ukrainian people are now dealing with in this terrible and needless war. That's it for today, folks. Um, I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon and stay well in the meantime. Hey, it's Danny
3: Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods,